Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. We've got an urban-themed podcast for you today with some great writers talking about some great cities, one of which is never named. First up, we've got an interview with Paul French, the author of Midnight in Peking. Midnight in Peking is the extraordinary true tale of the murder of an English schoolgirl during the dying days of Imperial Peking. And what makes this book even more remarkable is the fact that the author has managed to solve the case over 60 years later. In this interview, he'll be talking about his book and about the great city of Beijing. Next, we have an extract from the audiobook edition of Dubliners, in which James Joyce paints a vivid picture of North Richmond Street in his story Araby. Dubliners is being re-released on the 27th of July as part of the beautifully jacketed Penguin English Library series. And finally, we have both a reading and an interview from the author Greg Baxter. His new book, The Apartment, is set over one day in an old European capital, a city that he describes so richly but never names. So first up, we have Paul French in conversation with his editor, Joel Rickett. I'm Joel Rickett and I'm sitting here with Paul French. Um, I'm editorial director of Viking, which is Penguin's literary imprint, and Paul is author, um, author of Midnight in Peking, which is being published by Viking on the 31st of May. Um, now the subtitle of Midnight in Peking is The Murder That Haunted the Last Days of Old China. And from that title and subtitle, you might not be clear whether the book is fiction or non-fiction, and that's one of the themes that I hope we'll, we'll get to talk about over the next 15 minutes or so. Um, but first of all, um, I wanted to give you a, a little bit of background on Paul. Paul was born in the UK, but has been living in China for was it nearly 20 years been now. 20 years now, yeah. And um, has been an analyst on China, um, a sort of business analyst, but also an author, a historian, um, and has written a number of books on kind of aspects of Chinese history. This is something new for him, and I think something new for us, and hopefully something a little bit new for, for the world of books at large. It's um, a, a, a non-fiction story at heart, um, the story of the murder of an of a English schoolgirl in 1937, the dying days of um, colonial Peking. Um, this girl, Pamela Werner, her body was found pretty horrifically mutilated under the sort of supposedly haunted Fox Tower. And Paul's book follows really the hunt for Pamela's killers through the the Peking badlands, through this um, sort of last days of colonial Peking as the Japanese surround the city, and then on through the war as the hunt for the murderer continues. And what the book does, and again we'll hopefully get on to talking about this, is finally reveal after all these years who's responsible and actually name the killer or killers, which is quite remarkable. So it's, it's been, um, so far, from me and from Penguin's perspective, an extraordinary book to work on and to edit, and we think it's going to make a huge impact and have a huge resonance with readers around the world. Um, but I wanted to start by asking you, Paul, where you came across this story, because it is quite different to the books you'd previously written, which were sort of themed on certain themes of mm. Chinese history, whereas this is a singular narrative. What kind of inspired it? Well, I suppose, you know, if I, if I have a subject, it's kind of uh, China between the wars, or in Chinese history we would call the Republican period. Um, 
And um, I'm very interested in the role of foreigners in, in China during that period. And I'd written about that before. Um, and I was reading a biography of a well, very well-known foreigner in China, Edgar Snow, the journalist, who many people know wrote Red Star Over China, which really yeah. introduced the world to, to, to Mao Zedong. Um, and there was a small footnote in that rather dry, otherwise dry book um, that mentioned that uh, a, a young 19-year-old English girl had been murdered on January uh, the 8th 1937, which happens to be the Russian Christmas, just after the, the Western Christmas, um, and that her body had been mutilated quite badly and dumped at the base of the Fox Tower. The Fox Tower is one of the four watchtowers that uh, sit on the four corners of the Imperial uh, Wall that used to run around uh, what is now Tiananmen Square and the Forbidden City. So it was the very edge of... Uh, she, she lived in, in a traditional alley near there, what we... Chinese is called a hutong. Um, and her father was a very well-known sinologist, very well-known academic, but had been a senior British diplomat in China uh, for a long time. So a very well-known person. Um, and what intrigued me about it was several things. One was this was, a, this was a crime that happened in January 1937. And of course, this is the very last months of old China, because in July 1937, the Japanese invade. And then it's the Second World War. And then after the Second World War, it's the Civil War in China. And then after that, of course, it's the revolution. And so, you know, China never goes back to that that period again. And it, it moves on into from from into the People's Republic and so on. So it was a very interesting time. Um, it, it was an unsolved murder. And what also piqued my attention was that um, because it was in, you know, obviously in China, the chief of the Peking Detective Bureau came and investigated it, Colonel Han, who was the sen most senior detective in Peking. But it was traditional to bring, if a foreign national died, to bring in someone from their uh, country as, as a kind of to help with translation, with advice, with things like that. Uh, but because she was so important, because it was such a horrific killing, such a fraught political time, in China and in Beijing at that time, and because her father had been very important, they brought in a man from Tianjin, then called Tianjin, which was a treaty port like Shanghai, uh, which had where the British had some control. Uh, and he was an ex-Scotland Yard uh, police officer who'd moved out to Tianjin to run the police force there, a detective. And he came over and the two men worked together. And as far as I know, that's the only example in, in Chinese history where a, a Chinese detective and a Western detective worked together to solve a crime. And, so, and so, of course, I was fascinated. And you've said it. it's important. Yeah. Tell us why, though. I mean, first of all, it, she was, as you say, the daughter of someone important, of, of Edward Werner, NCC Werner, who, mm. who was, a, a, for a long period, the, the British consul, right? Mm, mm. And t tell us about the impact that, at the time when you started doing your initial research, presumably you looked to the newspapers. What kind of impact, how was the story covered? How, what, how, how big was the story? Well, well, Pamela's murder very quickly became something that came to symbolise the state of Peking in particular and China in general. You have to remember by this point that the, the Japanese have moved down from Manchuria, which they'd occupied in 1932, and were effectively surrounding Peking. Peking was a city that was living on borrowed time. It was no longer the capital anymore. Chiang Kai-shek had moved the capital to Nanking, Nanjing in 1927. It hadn't been the capital for 10 years. It had been run by warlords and, and, and different people since then. It wasn't really where the money was anymore. The money was in Shanghai and the money was in, in Tianjin, now, now Tianjin. But um, you had this world of, of, of kind of expats, basically. Yes, you had, these, did have you had these expats living there. You had people there who were on their grand tour of the world who'd stopped mm. off in China. 
China. You could live in China very cheaply then, of course. Um, you had scholars there. Lots of sinologists and scholars of, of Chinese were there. Both, both Chinese, it was, it, was cult, it was still the cultural and religious center of China as well. People forget now, but of course, Peking is sort of China's Rome. It's the center of, of all the, the Buddhist and the Taoist and, and other religions in China. Um, and, and so that, but it was a much smaller, much more tight knit community. And I think when you when you talk about Peking in the 1930s, people don't have an instant impression of it in the way that when you talk about Shanghai in the 1930s to audiences, you can sort of see people imagining jazz and chong sams and people dancing till dawn and that whole kind of East meets West art deco kind of thing going on. Peking was much more conservative, much more tight knit, much more incestuous in its relationships. Um, and so this came to symbolize the, the coming, it, it was one of those periods, a bit like when you see sort of, when you read sort of Christopher Isherwood on Berlin or you see the film Cabaret or something, you know, you know the end is coming, you know it's going to be bad, you just don't know how bad it's going to be. So there is this frenzied sort of, you know, emotions in the air which can result in everybody partying like there's no tomorrow, but can also involve everyone being scared, fear being ratcheted up. And so a murder. And then a then murder happens. And I, and I also think that, you know, one murder happening, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really given to quoting Stalin very often, but Stalin did say that, you know, one murder is a tragedy, a million is the statistic. And I think that Pamela was the one murder that both Chinese and foreigners alike were able to just grab hold of as a symbol for everything that was falling apart in their world at the time. So tell us about, about what actually happened then. And, 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 and the, first of all, how she was found, the condition she was in. Well, Pamela uh, lived most of her life, as did most of the foreigners, in an area called the Legation Quarter in, in Peking. A lot of people will know the sort of area I'm talking about. Have you ever seen the film 55 Days in Peking with David Niven and Charlton Heston and Ava Gardner? It's that European enclave of embassies which were known as legations in Peking. Uh, that was very Western and been besieged in 1900 by, in, during the Boxer Rebellion. And that's where people lived. And outside of that was the sprawling Chinese uh, city. Um, she had been there that evening uh, ice skating. It was January the 7th. It was cold, as, as Beijing is, a very cold city in January. And she um, was 17? She was 19, 19 at the time. There was some dispute about her age because mm. she had been... She was actually the adopted daughter of Bill, which was mm. something else that came out later. But she, um, and she cycled off into the night um, and literally at the end of the legation quarter, that's, that, those were the only electric lights in uh, Peking at the time. And she just cycled off into the darkness and was not seen again until uh, the following morning when she was found dead by the Fox Tower. Now, in between the legation quarter and the Fox Tower was an area called the Badlands. And this was an area of bars and brothels and nightclubs and cabarets. Um, mostly run by white Russian refugees who were there um, and, and the slightly the white underclass that don't get talked about very much in this period. This was not an area where the Chinese went and parted. This was an area where foreigners went and parted. And it was, a, it was a it was a who was it that discovered her? Uh, but she was actually discovered by a Chinese man who was out walking his birds, as people still do around the Fox mm -hmm. Tower in Peking. Um, the Fox Tower was interesting. It was called the Fox Tower because uh, all the graveyards of Peking had to be buried outside of the imperial city. So they had to be buried outside the wall. The Fox Tower stands in the, um, at the northeast corner of, of, of the wall around Peking. Um, it was, there, the, the foxes have a very important uh, symbolism in, in Chinese and much of Asian culture, slightly different to, to the way we see foxes in the West. Um, foxes' uh, spirits live in graveyards uh, and they gamble around the dead bodies. But what they do is they take the form of beautiful women, concubines, sing-song girls, as, they're known, as they were known in, in China, and they lure 
slightly dumb creatures like men by sort of, you know, uh, getting them drunk and making them fall in love with them and then taking their, their yin and their yang, their energy, their chi from them. Um, uh, the man dies um, and the fox spirit is able to live for another 10,000 years. So they are shapeshifters, if you like. They take on forms and it's always the form of a beautiful woman. Pamela was white. Pamela was blonde. She had very striking and quite rare grey eyes. Um, and she was, of course, young. So immediately, many of the more superstitious Chinese around the area believed that she was a fox spirit uh, that had been caught out. There are ways of killing fox spirits and ending their, their sort of reign. Um, so there was this initial superstition that started swirling around. And then, of course, there were lots and lots of different uh, rumours. The rumour mill went into overdrive about who had killed her, why she'd been killed, and it just revealed so much scandal in the foreign community. Well, what did the papers say, first of all? What, who, who, who did they think had done it? Well, the foreign papers thought it must be such a frenzied... It was such a frenzied attack. It was, it was, because, it was, I mean, we should say that she well, was... Without going into all the gruesome it, details... It, it, yeah, it was she pretty was discovered in, It was, in, it was in almost a Jack the Ripper-like mm. in, in, in terms of the, the, the destruction of the body. It was, it was quite horrific. Um, and so it was assumed that this could only be the work of a madman. Uh, there were a lot of wild dogs there, what were known in Chinese as the Huanggo, and they thought maybe they had been at the body. Now, that wasn't the case, though. It was done by, done by her killer or killers. Um, but, but there were rumours immediately. And, and, and as the police, the two police started to work together, the interesting thing for me was, I mean, again, you know, when you write nonfiction, sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. Or it just it becomes so you expect these things to happen. that Almost if you wrote it in a novel, people would say, oh, that, that's just cliched. But, you know, a Chinese detective working with a British detective, the British detective just happens to have been a hero in the First World War. He just happens to have been a Scotland Yard detective. You know, he's an East End boy made good and gone out to China. I mean, it's it's. It's all sort of, you know, whereas the Chinese guy is an ex-Chinese soldier sort of thing, you know. Um, and the other thing was that the British embassy, the British officials, feeling that, you know, they didn't want Britain or white people or Europeans in Peking to lose face at this time when we were all about to fall into a war with uh, Japan and Europe was about to go into war, put a lot of pressure on both the detectives to say, look, you know, this can't be a European that's killed her. You know, you need to find a Chinese person who's right. done this, right? And we and we need to sort that out this way. You know, so there you have the pompous and aloof British officials more concerned about face and, and their reputation than actually finding the killer of a young English girl. And these two policemen coming together determined to solve the crime based on the fact that although one is Chinese and one is Western and all the cultural differences, they're both at the end of the day good coppers and coming together on that sort of basis. And in a sense, it's so cliched. You know, we've seen that kind of thing a million times in TV shows where the local cops get really annoyed when the FBI come in and take the case away from them. Or the, but they work together in this. Yeah, thing. but they really did try and work together to solve the crime. But time and history was really against them, and I who, think. Who were when they, when they had this period of, of, of delving into the Badlands and of, of going all around the legation court? Who, who were their main suspects? Or, 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 you know, over the book, there are a number of suspects mm. and a number of sort of dead ends and false leads, really. But who who were these people that they that they turned to first? Where did they look, and, and what clues did they find? But what interested me was, was was very much that you know you had this world of the legation quarter, which was very prim. It was very proper. It was about people who had quite a lot of wealth, quite a lot of status, quite a lot of education, diplomats, businessmen, the, the supposedly upright members of the European community. 
And then you had this area called the Badlands, which was absolutely next door to them, where the white foreign underclass lived, you know, who've been much less talked about in, in history. Now, most Chinese histories, well, because of the books you can read, they tend to be memoirs of diplomats or businessmen or missionaries, right? They don't tend to be memoirs of people who went there to get lost and not be found. You know, not many prostitutes and pickpockets and dope dealers actually sort of write their memoirs, unfortunately. So... Uh, these two areas, you know, people would have liked to have thought that they were very separate and, and never the twain met, except what immediately came out in this investigation was that the two were much more intertwined than one would have expected. Um, and and so, so that came about immediately. So what, what was being suggested was that there were groups of men out there who were involved with, with women in the Badlands in different ways. Uh, whether it be sort of, you know consorting with prostitutes when they shouldn't have been or or or, or girls that were sort of going there to, to sort of party in the evenings when they shouldn't slumming it, I suppose we might call it nowadays. You know, that these two worlds that everyone thought was separate were actually mixing. So the facades start to fall down and the and the, mm -hmm. and the police start to cut through those. But this is a shock to everyone in society, I think. And there was also, of course, a um a couple of uh, early on in the book, a couple of um, I don't want to sort of give the game away too much, but the, the, the two suspects that stick out for me there was the rickshaw puller, mm. who um, you know, who's rickshaw and was found sort of soaked in blood, mm. um, and then there was also um, Pamela's um, headmaster at her grammar school, who yeah. had a somewhat sort of murky past. Tell us a bit about those two. Well, you know, what what I found out was that in the, in the course of the investigations that happened, there were these uh, there were these what ultimately became false trails, but I think shed a lot of light on on the world that she was inhabiting that was being revealed because of this investigation and what had happened. Um, and that was, of course, that, you know, uh, they were hunting for a Chinese person to do this and a rickshaw puller who they could pin this on looked like a pretty good bet, right? No one was going to miss a rickshaw puller, a kid from the countryside who came in and did such a lowly job as pulling people for pennies around the city. The headmaster, of course, was her headmaster. She was she was a boarder at what was supposed to was always known as the best school east of Suez, which was the Tianjin Grammar School, which was run along British public school lines where Pamela had gone. And it turned out that she had actually had to leave the school because of a scandal that had involved the headmaster. So, of course, you know, and that and that the, what the British policeman found, it was head of police for Tianjin, that only once she'd been murdered did this scandal suddenly come out, that this had been covered up by the grandees of the British community in Tianjin, to the point that, you know, the head of the British municipal police in Tianjin didn't even know about it, right? That was how good they were at covering things up. So again, you know, the idea that there's a scandal in the British community, it's messy, and it's all covered up by men who all happen to have been members of the same clubs and all went to Oxford together and everything. I mean, again, you know, if you wrote it in a novel, people would just go, oh, that's so cliched. But it really did happen. And tell us about the father, because, um, you know, his quest, I mean, first of all, he was clearly a suspect at the start, mm. right? Uh, but, but he becomes a sort of hero of the book, really, as he journeys on his own uh, and very much on his own through the course of the war, particularly to find who did this to his, to, to his daughter and to bring them to justice. Well, again, you know, it's a cliche, but her father uh, was that sort of upper class English father who comes over as a very cold man at first, you know, not a greatly emotional, emotive man. It's the 1930s. He's an English diplomat. You know, they're not the most uh, sort of warm people. Um, 
And, and the police play the numbers. They play the statistics. You know, most people who are murdered are murdered by someone they know or are related to or in a relationship with. That's the reality of murder then. It's the reality of murder now. And so they look very carefully at him and it dredges up a lot of stuff in his past to do with Pamela's adoptive mother as well. So there's a whole another series of scandals from before that get raked over that have been covered over over the years but have never really gone away. Questions that have never really gone away. I mean, I won't spoil those for people, but, but they're very interesting as well, going back through the history of Peking. Um, and, and, but what happens, of course, is July 1937, uh, the Japanese finally invade Peking and they occupy the city. Colonel Han, the Chinese detective, who's been very involved with the government, the, the Chiang Kai-shek's government, has to make himself scarce very quickly. Um, Chief Inspector Dennis, the, the Scotland Yard man, has to go back to Tianjin to, to, to carry it on. So a verdict of death by personal persons unknown is, is ruled. And that's the end of the investigation and nothing can happen because Peking is occupied. What I then sort of discovered by going through, I thought that was the end of the story, really. And there was some good characters there. There was a few good plots. There was some scandals to uncover. There was a whiff of opium, a hint of sex, the Badlands and everything. That would be enough. I could do a final chapter that said something like, you know, this is all interesting stuff and life is not like an episode mm. of CSI. And the truth will never come out. That, you could, you were ready to write up that. Five <laughs> minutes before the news, you know, this is how life is kind yeah. of thing, you know. Um, but then digging around, just trying to... I wanted to do one of those things at the end that you get at films that just say something like, you know, and Dave went on to mm. become an alcoholic and yeah. ended up homeless, you know. And those kind of things that tell you yeah. what happened afterwards. Yeah. And I was looking for some of that information in the National Archives, the UK National Archives here in London at Kew. And, and I came across some documents that had been kind of lost or no one had really looked at for a long time, ever, really. Um, and, and in that was an investigation that was continued through 1937 into 1938, into 1939 and into 1940. While, while British citizens were still able to move around in Peking, they hadn't been interned yet, even though, you know, uh, Britain was at war with Germany. It wasn't at war with Japan at that point. So they were able to keep keep out of internment camp. Um, and he had carried on a private investigation, the notes of which he had put together, sent to London. The father. Yeah. And I think when you put that together then I could find the end of it. But that was pure chance that I found those documents. Extraordinary. Well, what happened was that I was looking at documents in the National Archive, and there's tons and tons and tons of documents from the Second World War coming in from British legations all over, and only a fraction of it has been looked at. One librarian there told me there's so much of it that basically unless a document has got the magic words Winston and Churchill on it, right, in which case it is scanned in, catalogued, framed and put on the wall, basically, <laughs> no one's been through most of this stuff. And I, but I saw a box. It was England, right? So it was raining. I didn't queue a long way from the tube station. I didn't want to leave and get wet. And I was looking through the archives from the British Embassy, British Legation in Peking. And I, there was a box there that's marked Correspondence General, British Embassy Peking, 1943. Right? And I think to myself, who's sending correspondence out of the British Embassy in Peking in 1943? Because, of course, December the 8th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. The very next day, Britain and America both declare war on Japan and all allied British and American nationals are, are interned. I mean, people know Empire of the Sun, J.G. Ballard, right? They've seen the film. All, Empire, all, all foreign nationals are, are interned. Um, and E.T.C. Werner himself and a lot of the suspects in the case are all arrested and put in an internment camp called Weixian in the north of China for the duration of the war. The embassy is closed and shut down. There is no British diplomatic representation in Japanese-occupied Peking anymore. So who's sending letters out of the, the... 
And I open it up, and first of all, I'm quite disappointed because I realise that it's not actually correspondence from 1943. It's correspondence from before December 1941, but it took two years because of disruption to the shipping lanes to get to London. So 1943 is the year it reached London and was catalogued, not the year it was written. And then I realise it's all boring. It's it's requisition orders for stationery. It's, it's, it's laundry lists that have been for the curtains at the embassy that have been sent out to be cleaned and come back. It's the detritus of diplomatic bureaucratic life. right? And then I turn over a page and there's a 150 page typed document, uh, different documents that have been sent um, and notes scribbled in by hand to add things in because people couldn't, it was all done on typewriters and things. People just scribbled in margins, all sent to the Foreign Office Whitehall by E.T.C. Werner and the conclusive, what he believed was the evidence of his private investigation, where he had taken his life savings and paid people to talk. Detectives who'd worked on the case before, who were unable to work in Peking because of the Japanese occupation, he hired them and sent them out to find people. Incredible. He offered rewards and he put all of this together. And it had all arrived in London in 1943 and all anyone had done was signed, received as on that date. To be fair to London, London in 1943 had other things to mm. worry about mm. apart from one day. I mean, mm. it was, you know, it was being bombed, but the Germans still absolutely. had to be beaten. But by so. using that and comparing it to your own research, you've kind of been able to come to a conclusion as, as clear as we could ever hope for. Well, I think so. I mean, I think what I was able to do was take the, the, the information that Werner had found, which, which the police didn't know, put that with what we know the police knew, put that with what was in the newspapers at the time. There are a few other things like the medical autopsy report that I managed to find, which were very useful. And crucially, you know, which wouldn't be true in a couple of years from now, I found six or seven people who were alive at the time and were schoolmates or knew Pamela in Peking or Tianjin. Now, those people are all in their very late 80s or 90s now. But what you get from them, which you don't get from the notes and the autopsy notes in the newspapers, of course, is you get the gossip. Yes. You get what their mum and dad was talking about when this murder happened and things. And I think that's very important. And if you go to a point where there's no living people who've left things, you can't get the no. gossip anymore and what was the scuttlebutt that was around at the time. So it's first-person research as well. I, mean, I think so, yeah. And I think when you put all of that together, I think that um, I, I now know who killed Pamela. I mean, of course, Penguin will say that I have solved a 75-year-old murder. To be fair, I have to say that what I did was discover the documentation that when you put it with other documentation, I think gives us a very, very good case that could be presented in any court that says that, you know, this is who killed Pamela Werner on January the 8th, 1937. Well, that's what detectives do and that's what good writers do. So uh, thank you, Paul. I hope that's uh, inspired a few people, listeners, to go off and um, read Midnight in Peking by Paul French. Thanks a lot. That was Paul French, author of Midnight in Peking, talking to his editor, Joel Rickett. Next up, we have an extract from the audiobook edition of Dubliners, read by the actor Gerard McSorley. Araby North Richmond Street, being blind, was a quiet street except at the hour when the Christian Brothers' school set the boys free. An uninhabited house of two storeys stood at the blind end, detached from its neighbours in a square ground. The other houses of the street, conscious of decent lives within them, gazed at one another with brown, imperturbable faces. 
The former tenant of our house, a priest, had died in the back drawing room. Air, musty from having been long enclosed, hung in all the rooms, and the waste room behind the kitchen was littered with old, useless papers. Among these I find a few paper-covered books, the pages of which were curled and damp. The Abbot, by Walter Scott, The Devout Communicant, and The Memoirs of the Doc. I liked the last best because its leaves were yellow. The wild garden behind the house contained a central apple tree and a few straggling bushes, under one of which I found the late tenant's rusty bicycle pump. He had been a very charitable priest. In his will, he had left all his money to institutions and the furniture of his house to his sister. When the short days of winter came, dusk fell before we had well eaten our dinners. When we met in the street, the houses had grown sombre. The space of sky above us was the colour of ever-changing violet, and towards it the lamps of the street lifted their feeble lanterns. The cold air stung us, and we played till our bodies glowed. Our shouts echoed in the silent street. The career of our play brought us through the dark, muddy lanes behind the houses, where we ran the gauntlet of the rough tribes from the cottages, to the back doors of the dark, dripping gardens where odours arose from the ash pits, to the dark, odorous stables where a coachman smoothed and combed the horse or shook music from the buckled harness. When we returned to the street, Light from the kitchen windows had filled the areas. If my uncle was seen turning the corner, we hid in the shadow until we had seen him safely housed. Or, if Mangan's sister came out on the doorstep to call her brother into his tea, we watched her from our shadow peer up and down the street. We waited to see whether she would remain or go in, and if she remained, we left our shadow and walked up to Mangan's steps resignedly. She was waiting for us, her figure defined by the light from the half-open door. Her brother always teased her before he obeyed, and I stood by the railing looking at her. Her dress swung as she moved her body, and the soft rope of her hair tossed from side to side. Every morning I lay on the floor in the front parlour watching her door. The blind was pulled down to within an inch of the sash so that I could not be seen. When she came out on the doorstep, my heart leapt. I ran to the hall, seized my books and followed her. I kept her brown figure always in my eye, and when we came near the point at which our ways diverged, I quickened my pace and passed her. This happened morning after morning. I had never spoken to her except for a few casual words, and yet her name was like a summons to all my foolish blood. Her image accompanied me even in places the most hostile to romance. On Saturday evenings, when my aunt went marketing, I had to go to carry some of the parcels. We walked through the flaring streets, jostled by drunken men and bargaining women, amid the curses of labourers, the shrill litanies of shop-boys who stood on guard by the barrel of pigs' cheeks, the nasal chanting of street-singers who sang a camalia about O'Donovan Rossa, or a ballad about the troubles in our native land. 
These noises converged in a single sensation of life for me. I imagined I bore my chalice safely through a throng of foes. Her name sprang to my lips at moments in strange prayers and praises which I myself did not understand. My eyes were often full of tears, I could not tell why, and at times a flood from my heart seemed to pour itself out into my bosom. I thought little of the future. I did not know whether I would ever speak to her or not, or if I spoke to her, how I could tell her of my confused adoration. But my body was like a harp, and her words and gestures were like fingers running upon the wires. One evening I went into the back drawing-room in which the priest had died. It was a dark, rainy evening, and there was no sound in the house. Through one of the broken panes I heard the rain impinge upon the earth, the fine, incessant needles of water playing in the sodden beds. Some distant lamp or lighted window gleamed below me. I was thankful that I could see so little. All my senses seemed to desire to veil themselves, and feeling that I was about to slip from them, I pressed the palms of my hands together until they trembled, murmuring, O oh love, O oh love, many times. That was Jared McSorley reading an extract from Dubliners. And finally, we have both a reading and an interview with Greg Baxter, author of The Apartment. Hi, my name's Joe Pickering. I'm a publicist here at Penguin. I'm here on the podcast with Greg Baxter, who's written the novel The Apartment, which we've just published, a book that Hisham Matar has described as deeply mysterious and admirable, and Roddy Doyle's called Clever, Entertaining, Brave. This podcast is urban-themed, and in the novel, the narrator moves through an old European capital while heavy snow falls. He's come here from a long way away, and he's hoping to forget. And instead, as he moves through the city, he remembers home, war, lost friends, and the company of a new friend. Greg Batter's going to read for us from the novel and give us a flavour of it, and then we're going to have a discussion. Somebody here asked me about my politics. I told him I had none. We were sitting in a bar, and he was drinking, and I was not drinking. Not really, just a beer, slowly, and he said I was a liar. His name was Fritz. Everything is political, said Fritz. I said nothing, and Fritz, I suppose, realized I had not agreed with him. So he told me what I really felt was disillusionment with politics, and that's not the same thing as having no politics. He seemed like a nice guy. We hung out for the rest of the night, he said, I don't smoke, but all night he smoked my cigarettes. And then we went to an automat so I could buy more cigarettes. And he said, get me a pack too. So I bought him a pack. He put that pack in his pocket and smoked the cigarettes in my pack. He talked almost entirely about himself and the city and about politics. He was comically short and had a very funny walk like something out of the Ministry of Silly Walks, where every step off his right foot was a bounce, as though he was trying to see over a short fence. He took me on a long walk that ended at the Parliament building, 
and there he shook my hand and said goodbye. Goodbye, I said, and I've never seen him since. Fritz, a good name. That was one of my first nights in the city, or maybe it was recently. As time diffuses, or my preoccupation with it ebbs, I've lost my grip on chronology. I also forget things. I don't remember anything about my flight from the U.S. I remember only standing before a huge board in the airport, here, looking at hotel listings. After Fritz said goodbye, he hopped in a taxi. He stood at the edge of a busy road right in front of Parliament, where there were hundreds of taxis on the road, all with illuminated yellow bars of light on their rooftops, coming at us in a constant swarm. And Fritz stuck his hand out, and one dropped out of the swarm and stopped right in front of him. Throughout the night, Fritz had been telling me that his party, he was a local councillor in a satellite city, was going to storm a general election in the spring and wipe out inequality by raising taxes and putting unemployed people back to work. And as I stood before the parliament building that night, with its enormous white columns, I realized he had brought me there, in part to show me the trophy he prized, but also to suggest the pointlessness of being apolitical. The building is impressive. It's a wonder. During the day, tourists walk around it like the apes around the obelisk in 2001, and you cannot blame them. That's the way I felt, staring up at it. But after a while, you don't feel wonder. You start to feel panic, because you realize that human beings are possessed by the idea that they must fill the world with objects and ideas that will outlive them. And you suddenly glimpse the fires that burn below human despair. I think of Fritz fondly, and the fondness comes from an instantaneous nostalgia, the knowledge that I'll never see him again, not ever, and that he may not even remember meeting me, because every night he goes out drinking, he finds somebody to proselyze to, to borrow cigarettes from, and to leave at the feet of the symbol of his hope for a transformed and just world. Greg, before we get on to the discussion specifically about the novel, let's talk a bit about you. And you're American, originally from Texas, but you live in Berlin now. And I know you've lived in other places around Europe. Tell us a bit about the places you've lived in. I uh, was born and raised in Texas. The first 20 years of my life were in Texas. My parents were together for the first 10 years of my life, and we had a, a house in San Antonio. And then after the divorce, we kind of stuck around a little bit. And finally, I moved my mother to a place called Cut and Shoot, Texas, which is a, a satellite of Conroe, Texas, if you uh, believe that. You know, we lived in some, some dark little country roads in houses that were half trailers and had bomb shelters and those kind of things and some strange, strange neighbors. I eventually moved back to San Antonio. My grandmother is from Vienna and my father is from Vienna. They moved to Texas after World War II when my father was two years old. And so I had this contradiction in my life from a very early age, which is on one side of my family, we were rednecks living in trailers. 
And on the other side, we were fancied ourselves as aristocrats who were dislocated temporarily in Texas. That was something interesting. And I, I went to visit Austria, visit my family there, and then I went to Germany for an exchange program when I was 20 years old. And I left there and was determined to come back. Um, and I've lived in Germany and Austria and England. I did a, a year here at University of Sussex for a master's and spent some time in Chicago, spent some time in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which sounds great, but it's a mistake. <laughs> and the last 10 years or last eight years I've been in Dublin and I've just moved over to Berlin and you know, finally have achieved what I've been wanting to do for a very long time, which is to put myself in the middle of a gigantic European city. Uh, which brings us on to the novel quite nicely, which is set in a European city. We may as well get to sort of one of the main issues first, which is that the city itself is never named. It seems to be a kind of composite of various cities. I've spoken to people and heard Vienna, Berlin, Prague mentioned. I wonder if you could talk a bit about the decision to um, uh, not to name the city. Well, I, I, this is a question in two parts. There wasn't so much of a decision at the beginning to do anything. I think I quickly ran into the problem of perhaps not knowing a specific city well enough to authentically write about it in the way that someone who has lived there for a long time could know everything. But part of my interest in this city stemmed from the fact that I suppose I had wanted to for a very long time, as I said, live in this gigantic old European city. I suddenly found myself, uh, I wasn't even sure how I got there, in a bland boom time estate in North Dublin suburbs. It was just concrete and emptiness and no atmosphere and every day you looked out the window and you, all you could sense was grief and regret. So European city had let you down. <laughs> well, the inside of it, the city centre in Dublin is, is wonderful and had I lived there, maybe this book wouldn't have been written. The fact that I was living in this grey, cheerless estate, the very opposite of what a European city had always been in my, uh, in my mind. It was a sort of wish fulfillment. It was something I could go to every day and sit down. Instead of looking out the window, I could look into what I was writing. For the short time that I was writing the book, I felt like I lived there, and, I've, and it was a great place to be. So, so it is, in a sense, it's that wish fulfillment. It's that sense of newness and possibility and hope, and I think that's something that's important about it. But at the same time, the city is its a composite in some ways, but it's also imaginary. And importantly, it's quite illogical. It takes them an awfully long time to get to the center of the city and their journey kind of meanders more than you might expect it to given how big you the city is supposedly in your head. Yeah, it shouldn't take that long, of course, but, but it has to. And in some ways, I felt like they were doing circles. Sometimes they'd be moving forward and it seemed to have moved them backwards in a sense. And the idea is it's to juxtapose this, this sense of newness and hope and possibility with the sense of 
terror and pursuit and guilt. Do you think that the narrator is somebody who's trying to escape something, or do you, you not see the novel in quite such stark terms, that his journey through the city is an attempt to move away from things he's experienced? That's part of it as well, is this trying to leave something behind. If it were easy enough to leave behind, he'd probably get to the center a lot faster. The fact is that it's, it's not happening for him. But it's nothing specific that he's running from. There isn't a, a single traumatic moment or memory that is fueling this, this journey or that represents a, a specific thing that he's running from or that's chasing him. I don't believe in that. I don't believe that we're psychologically analyzable entities, that what's most interesting about us is the fact that we can't, we can't find those kinds of answers. And for him, this thing that's after him, this thing that, is, that he's trying to leave behind, and including where he's going, are mysteries. And they are, they are not explicable, specific things, but senses, and they pre-exist. They were there before him. This guilt and shame he feels that you increasingly discover as you go through the book is something that can't be explained. It was there before he was born, and it will be there after he dies. The main action in the book, apart from this journey through the city, does take place, in the, to me, in the narrator's head. The main action of the book seems to be his remembering, the act of remembering. And you just said that the city, this journey to the city is an act of wish fulfillment in him. Do you think that's a, a vain wish because he's going to the city? I know W.G. Sabled, particularly in Austerlitz, talks about the fact that cities and their buildings and certain types of architecture in particular almost contain the memories of things that they've witnessed. And the narrator has almost mistakenly gone to a place that contains its own memories. Do you think that it was a kind of vain hope for him and that cities necessarily do contain these things? Absolutely. I mean, part of what is, is going on here has to do with his past in Iraq, first in the Navy and then as a private contractor. In vain, he's gone to a place to leave this behind, except that he's found himself in a European capital that represents, in many ways, the contrast with the Middle East, um, the Muslim world, and the Christian world. And this city is a kind of both a capital and outpost of Christendom. And he's come here to try to forget that, and it's absolutely in vain. The book is stylistically different from beginning to end. And one of the reasons is that he's trying very hard to hold back the memories in the beginning. He's actively, through sheer willpower, holding them away. And one of the ways that you see that, the sentences in the beginning of the book are very short. As you go along, they lengthen out. And that's the effect of this memory overwhelming his willpower to try and forget. 
And this has something to do with what's after him. You mentioned just there quite a lot of actual specific places and the novel does have a, an awful lot of very specific detail. It mentions Iraq, Jordan. It goes into long, detailed discussions about the nature and mechanics of submarine warfare, for example. You've not named the city that the novel is set in. You also don't name the narrator's hometown, which he simply calls the desert. I wondered why you didn't put a specific place on that as well. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's going to be a sort of natural assumption that the desert is Texas. But I needed something hotter and vaster, perhaps West Texas. But also, I spent a lot of time in Arizona and driving around New Mexico. And For some reason, I was thinking of the outskirts of Vegas. Yeah, absolutely. Vegas, Nevada, Utah, California. That whole area of just this baked earth, this white and red vastness, it seems to me that that landscape and that heat and that emptiness and is a kind of place of great fear and that landscape is somehow emblematic or associated with his with the memories that he's brought do you think that kind of landscape is very specific to america that type of desert well i can't say if if those deserts are unique to america for me in my memory they carry that americanness with them I can't think of that landscape, that particular landscape, without thinking of the American West, a place that I know pretty well and drove through quite a lot. And it's a place that stuck with me for a long time. It just so happened that it was the perfect juxtaposition with this ice-cold, snowy, gigantic European city where full of narrow streets and illogical ways through it a sort of labyrinthine journey compared to the idea of huge, vast, baked landscapes and endless roads that you go on straight for hundreds of miles. Do you think you could talk a bit about the difference between American and European cities? I think there's a moment in the book where you talk about US cities having a certain naivety. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, uh, maybe even if you can find the line. There's an implicit suggestion that there's a naivety in American cities. When the narrator talks about what he admires so much about the European city and its lack of naivety, I'll read it for you. Here in this city, intense joy and intense sorrow are extinct. The place is too old for that kind of naivety. Everyone here responds to these extinctions by opening doors for each other or making room at tables. They are generous and polite. I admire this. To celebrate the extinction of hope with ritual and composure. To place coats on the shoulders of women. There isn't a thought left. There isn't a sentence. There isn't a human being. Something about that lack of naivety in this European city is what draws him to it, and it's what draws him to the woman he's met, Saskia, who's a very wise and interesting person. 
there's something, although I can't say specifically, and I don't want to, I don't want to come off as sounding politically minded, but there's something strangely naive about the way American cities seem to me. There's something optimistic about the way they just go out and out and out and get bigger and bigger. And there's something naive about the way we talk about being American. There's something naive about the way we disagree with each other politically. We scream and shout at each other. It always seems kind of messy and chaotic. And I think this narrator has that opinion of America. In itself, it's not a naive, anti-American cliche. He's not being negative about America. He's being positive about where he is now. This idea of shouting and screaming and loud noises are, it's what he's left behind, and that's why this book has this calm to it, because he's, he's finally found a place that's calm. Well, I was actually going to ask you about, about naivety with regard to the narrator. Do you think he starts as a somewhat naive character? I mean, I'm just thinking even stylistically, you said the book begins very short, quite punchy sentences, and, you know, it's kind of not like this, but made me think even a bit of like the rolling news you sort of get at the bottom of a broadcast. And then it lengthens out into these longer, slightly more hypnotic sentences. It seems to me just a slightly more European style. Maybe I'm poorly read, but uh, but it did strike me as a slightly more European voice towards the end of the novel. Yeah. No, absolutely. He's giving in. The novel is it's heavily influenced by European novels. And in a way, it can be looked at as a journey from the American novel into the European novel. I don't think of him as a naive person, but certainly his attempt to leave these memories behind is a naive one. And slowly, throughout the day, he gives in. There's this inexorable process in which it's broken down. And finally, at the end, he's consumed by it. Do you think you could talk a bit about some of the writers who have influenced you? I know it's always a difficult question in terms of those people who've been a direct influence. Actually, I always uh, prefer to have it asked uh, in the way somebody once asked me what music I like. Somebody said, what music do you like? And then said, oh, no, sorry, that's a terrible question. What are the last three albums you heard that you really liked? What have been the last three books or writers who you've read that you've really liked? They don't necessarily have to have been an influence. You can just talk about what you've enjoyed. Well, certainly the, the last three books that I've read would have been read since the end of writing The Apartment. So that in, in, in some ways, uh, most of the books that I have read in the last 10 years for pleasure in fiction have been books in translation. And it's not a necessarily a deliberate or conscious decision to not read books originally written in English. It is simply the fact that every time I pick up a book, it's a book in translation. This strange tradition that I'm discovering as I go along always feels like home to me. The Central Europeans and Eastern Europeans and Russian, however dishonest that home may be, it's something that feels very real to me in the same way that when I go to cities that I haven't been to in Europe, I was in Romania and went to Bucharest, and I thought, oh, 
the city is like Bucharest as well. And so you find that things are influencing you in some ways that you can't understand, but before you ever got there, it was having an effect on you. Well, I'll, I'll tell you about a book I'm reading right now, The General of the Dead Army by Ishmael Kader. An amazing, absolutely amazing book. The one before that was Extinction by Thomas Bernhard. Old Masters was a book that I was reading by Bernhard that had a lot to do with this book. And I think that Bernhard opened up something really interesting, which was permission or possibility to be simple. The idea to, to move a book by the intensity of thought alone, to create intensity without coincidence. He was very formative, and I enjoyed going back to him. Part of what I'm doing in Berlin now to, to try to improve my German is taking these little tiny, these very minute stories of Franz Kafka and translating them, translating them very badly, and learning very interesting things about Kafka, which is that the translations that, I, that I've seen so far aren't so much translations as best guess interpretations. He writes in a very, very interesting way that I didn't know about until I tried to tackle him in German. Greg, thanks very much for coming. My pleasure. That was Greg Baxter talking about his new book, The Apartment. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, please visit our website at penguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at Penguin Podcast on Twitter. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.